Welcome to Educate with Dr. Jefferson, the talk show that makes the connections between research, policies, and practitioners that are too often missing from the American education system. Now, here's your host, Dr. Jonathan Jefferson. Good day, listeners. Welcome to Educate with Dr. Jefferson. I am your host, Jonathan Jefferson. You can learn more about me at my show page on TalkZone.com. We ended 2014 with an episode devoted to STEM education, science, technology, engineering, math. We will begin 2015 with a continued focus on STEM. In the most recent December-January issue of Educational Leadership, I read an interesting article titled Tinkering is Serious Play by Bronwyn Bevan, Mike Petrich, and Karen Wilkinson. These authors are exceptional educators who work at the Exploratorium in San Francisco, California. I am pleased that one of the authors, Mike Petrich, is going to be joining us this hour. Mike Petrich, as director of the Making Collaborative at the Exploratorium, this includes the professional development strands of the tinkering and making work, as well as the online courses, publications, and other outputs of the tinkering studio work. The participants of the tinkering and making programs include after-school community educators, classroom teachers, museum educators, exhibit developers, librarians, and other people interested in supporting making and tinkering as a way of knowing. Mike is a curious, Mike is curious about how people develop personal and unique understandings of the world for themselves. With a background in fine arts, filmmaking, and photography, he applies the act of careful observation to, mi- to much of his work as an educator and facilitator. Mike has been working at this for 20 years with audiences as diverse as museum visitors, primary school students, Tibetan monks, prison inmates, and graduate school researchers. Mike, Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm happy to be here. Hey, I greatly appreciate you giving us your time. Uh, Mike, let's start with uh, what is tinkering and what is making? <laughs> well, tinkering and making, um, I think, is this really great uh, new way of engaging educators, librarians, and the other people that you mentioned in the world of youth specifically to start thinking about their world in interesting ways. But I do want to say that tinkering and making is not new. This is an age-old practice that I think many of our forefathers and ancestors used to come to understand the world. Communities do this to this day without thinking about it as an educational practice when they're building toys or trying to figure out how to build freshwater treatment plants in different parts of of the world. The communities that we travel to are pretty diverse in terms of the way that these community members make and tinker their way through developing the things that they need on an ongoing basis. And so the fact is that the maker movement in the last couple of years has become really popular because of LEDs and Arduino computers and other sort of high-tech tools. And we're interested in how to use any of these tools and materials, high-tech and low-tech, in ways that help people make sense of the world for themselves. Now, would an example of making, uh, without the title making, be, uh, for example, a, uh, a child uh, taking objects in his environment or in her environment and uh, trying to put it together in useful ways without ever having any uh, formal instruction? Would that be an appropriate example? I think so. This is, this is exactly what I find both children and graduate school researchers doing. They approach 
uh, a material or a situation or a scientific or artistic phenomenon. And for me, the act of tinkering or making is instead of building the kit step by step, or instead of doing what's expected that you might do with lights and reflection and mirror, you actually you bring a new challenge to it. You bring your own idea about what you might want to build. One of the examples of an activity that we might do in the tinkering studio is to get families involved in building Rube Goldberg contraptions. So these are whimsical contraptions that use rolling balls and tinfoil switches and lights and motors. And there's no one right way or one best way for each family group to build this contraption. In fact, they're presented these, with these materials and they're asked to create some interesting movement from one side of the table to the other, where it's then connected with another family's contraption. And the fact that we don't have the instructions or we don't tell them exactly how to start and how to finish means that they're forced to tinker their way through the challenges that they end up posing for themselves. We have all sorts of activities where we're trying to give people the tools and the materials and some context for people to explore these things at their own pace, to follow their own pathways through, and to make some sense for themselves with us helping out as guides or facilitators. Well, that's excellent, and it makes me curious. I did an episode this past summer on autism, and I'm curious, have you ever had a group or individuals who are nonverbal autistic, and were you able to observe how they took to the tinkering and making? It's a really fascinating thing for us, too, because we're not experts in the autism spectrum, but we're slowly becoming sort of the epicenter for uh, a group of, of parents and caregivers in the Bay Area who happened to be using the tinkering studio and talking about it via word of mouth. So one of the activities that we have is a series of wood blocks, and on top of each wood block is a battery pack or a light bulb or a motor or a buzzer, and then there are some wires with alligator clips kind of strewn about on the table. People work together to kind of hook up batteries to motors and light bulbs and switches, and it's a very much uh, the way that People like to work at their own pace to try to figure out how to complete circuits is, is what we normally see. But lately we've been noticing a large amount of kids and parents coming in. And the funny thing is, I couldn't tell you when I'm, when I'm facilitating this activity, which of the kids are on an autistic spe- spectrum and which kids aren't, because they look like they're doing pretty much the same thing. They're hooking Mm. things up and they're getting it right or they're hooking things up and they're getting it wrong. And some might actually articulate a question, but others don't. And it's only through talking to the parents that I find out. And oftentimes we find that these parents are tearing up because they've not seen their child who is on the autistic spectrum start to communicate with her or him in very new ways. In in some Mm. cases, these kids have started to verbalize intentions or questions or ideas that they have. And so to me, it's a really interesting moment that we have to to learn more ourselves about the autism spectrum because somehow the activities that we're designing naturally are leading to this population that I would love to be able to support. I agree. And this just, you know, for me, it just seems to be such a natural um, avenue uh, to connect to that population. So I would love to see... uh, um, actually deliberate research in that area and, and see what the results would be. Um, I, think, I think that would be interesting. The other thing that, that you mentioned, I think, is what the value of articulating and communicating and speaking to each other is with one's own learning. And so whether we're, sometimes we'll find ourselves working with preschoolers who don't have the ability 
for whatever reason, you know, they're, they're, too, they're too young to be able to verbalize what their ideas or their questions are, but by their actions, by them taking their own actions, putting materials together, interacting with other preschool kids, I believe that there's just as much learning going on without the ability to articulate the questions or the proper, um, you know, the, the proper scientific term. And so I think it leads us to try to consider what is the value of um, the, the scientific term, communicating ideas and questions, and try to temper that with the age group that we're working with or the different sort of learning abilities that these kids have. It's, it's a fascinating thing to think about. Mm, excellent. You know, for some reason I started thinking about what is a, a more deliberate traditional curriculum approach that is gaining a lot more steam, which is uh, coding. Um, yeah. And... Um, and thinking in that vein, which is more really the opposite, where it's so structured, uh, describe the importance of tinkering and making for thinking and learning, because that's well, the I end goal a, for both coding and for for making. Yeah, no, it, it's, a, it's a great comparison. And actually, the funny thing is, as my partner Karen and I started this work many years ago by working uh, with Mitchell Resnick at the Lifelong Kindergarten Group at the Media Lab, and we were doing... Lego logo programming. We were programming with code. And the interesting parallel for me is that when you're tinkering, you're usually using the materials in a way where you can be innovative, you can, um, you can, um, you can, you know, you can try something new for the first time. You, you may know enough about the materials that lead you into a direction to complexify your thinking or to complexify the questions or the problems that you have. And I believe that whether you're working with um, wood tools or electricity or coding, when you, when you have enough of a, of a starting point and understanding with those things, you can iterate, quickly prototype, and improvise with coding as much as you can with other things. The, the interesting tension is, just like we wouldn't just hand somebody a handsaw in the tinkering studio and say, go make a beautiful piece of wooden art, there are some things that we need to show people about how to use a handsaw safely and then how to start improvising with a handsaw. And I think the same thing has to happen with coding. You know, when we use MicroWorlds or, or Logo, for example, or now, now everybody's using Scratch, and we love using Scratch because you can get a, a couple of interesting starting points where you start to understand just the very basics of logic and how to use these tools to program, much like you would if we showed you how to use a drill for the first time. And then we create a context a challenge, or just a collection of people to be coding together as they might be building together with these other tools. Wow, that's excellent. And, you know, I, I, I haven't been to California. Actually, I've been to California many times, but I haven't been to San Francisco yet. So uh, you may see this 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 gentleman, you know, uh, poking around soon to, to see exactly what it is. Exciting. I might not leave. <laughs> Well, you're welcome anytime. I think one of the one of my favorite parts about being in the tinkering studio is when I get to talk to parents who have brought their children in, or I talk to visitors, whether they're educators or researchers, and they're coming to look at what's going on. And quite frankly, what people mostly see looks a little bit chaotic. You know, everybody's not sitting in a row in the tinkering studio listening to the science interpreter tell them what they ought to think about next. Everybody's not following the same step-by-step -step pathway, so there are materials and projects in different forms all across the space. Sometimes it's noisy. Sometimes we're using dangerous tools in safe ways. And sometimes we might be experimenting with sound, so there's all sort of a cacophony sort of built up. And what I love to do is just take take a visitor and just slow down and point out 
the tiny but important aspects of what each kid or each adult is doing in there. And like it or not, it's, it takes some practice to start to develop the capacity to make these careful observations. But our number one goal is to have deep, thoughtful, and meaningful engagement on the part of the learner. And so that often means that there are people learning at different time frames and in different ways throughout the space. And so I welcome all visitors to come in. They get a little bit nervous at first because it looks a little chaotic, but the mm-hmm. minute we start noticing some of the some of the common things that people are doing, you know, they're they're sitting hunched over the table with their postures really into what they're doing or they're talking to each other. They're talking to you know, families talk to, to other families and other, other kids that they may not have come in with, but now they're spending two hours working on a project with them. Those are some wow. of the, the beautiful details to point out. And that's excellent. And in fact, educators uh, in formal settings are, and traditional settings are learning that a, a positive uh, classroom is a, an active, noisy, you know, kind of chaotic classroom that the traditional methods are not actually the, the, the better methods. You know, kids sitting in rows, everyone doing the same thing at the same time uh, is not actually as effective as, as, as some noise and some, some discord. That's, that's a more productive classroom. I think so, it's more productive. It's, it's also a little bit more realistic in terms of who we all are as, as individual people. But mm-hmm. I don't want to give the false impression that what we're doing at the Exploratorium and the Tinkering Studio is the only way to teach. We have mm-hmm. deep respect and, um, and passion for the spectrum of experiences that make up one's experience in education. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to provide an experience that complements the visitor's experience at the Exploratorium. Now, the Exploratorium is filled with wonderful exhibits where you push a button or you turn a crank or you try to make wonderful observations about the phenomenon that's being presented. And so for us, the Tinkering Studio was a nice complement to that because it's a little more active in what you're constructing and making. Likewise, mm-hmm. in classrooms, I would never presume to say that this needs to replace all work that teachers are doing in all schools, but I do think it's a good complement. You know, In fact, we work with a lot of teachers who come into the tinkering studio who teach series and parallel circuits, and they can articulate on the board and talk about series and parallel circuits very well. But Mm -hmm. when presented with the materials, uh, you know, a block that a wooden block that has a battery pack on it and a wooden block that has a couple of light bulbs on it, it's hard for them to put into action the conceptual understanding of what they normally teach. So I think there's a role here for the practical, intuitive understanding that can be built through tinkering and making, and mm-hmm. a critical role for the conceptual underpinnings of this work as we grow and develop through our educational time. Excellent. Now, you, you spoke, uh, we're going to do one more question before we take a, a short break, but you you uh, indirectly spoke to the, the history uh, of this method as being, even before it was called, you know, tinkering and making was already happening. But how about the more formalized um, the tinkering and making that's that's growing and spreading? Uh, what's the history of that the method as, as a more formal process? Yeah, so what's interesting uh, is that I talked about sort of the cultural histories, and um, there is an educational history that in this country goes back probably to the late 50s, the early 60s. This is the, the Sputnik era when um, the Russians, the Soviet Union, sent up um, a spaceship for the U.S. They beat us in that, in that scientific endeavor, and the U.S. government here pulled together some of the best and brightest physicists to try to figure out how to get science to become more prevalent and relevant in schools. Now, it just so happens at the end of my formal education career, I got to know 
quite a few of these scientists who were a combination of scientists and philosophers that worked on the Manhattan Project, many mm. that worked and taught at MIT, many that worked and taught at Harvard. And they created a curriculum called the Elementary Science Study. Now, you can still find this out there. And this is, this is a science curriculum that explored the moon, explored ice, cold, and hot temperature things. It explored pendulums and pulleys and circuits. And so much of our initial prototyping around t- using tinkering and making as a learning endeavor comes directly from that elementary science study curriculum. And everywhere I go, we find teachers who are still using this type of approach, whether it's the curriculum or not, in their formal educational world. And again, teachers are pretty savvy. They know what mm-hmm. works in their classroom, and they know what tools they have to draw on. So there's always been a thread of tinkering and making in a good teacher's classroom. I think what's happened lately is that making and tinkering have become popularized by Make Magazine and Maker Fair and other efforts like ours. Okay, and we're going to talk a little bit deeper than that uh, on that particular topic, but let's take a short break. Uh, stay tuned. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome back to Educate on Talk Zone. Here's Dr. Jonathan Jefferson. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back to the show and our discussion with our guest, Mike Petrich from the Exploratorium in San Francisco, California. If you'd like to join our conversation, the phone lines are open, 888-463-6748. That's 888-463-6748. We're taking your calls on TalkZone. Uh, Mike, how is the weather out in San Francisco this this January? You don't want to know. We're having record highs right now, so it's about oh. 70 degrees in the city. <laughs> it's normally not this nice, it's, 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 um, but, but we're lucky today. Well, um, the, the Talk Zone Studios in Chicago, and they are um, they are in the Ice Age, and here in New York, we're not too much uh, off from that Ice Age. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm hoping to steal some of your warmth over this uh, over these lines. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Mike, what does the maker's movement have to do with the educational approach, with this educational approach? Well, so this is interesting. In my my viewpoint, and I think there are a lot of viewpoints about this, but my perspective has been that the the maker movement is recently the the first public um, opportunity to publicize what a lot of hobbyists, scientists, artists, and even educators have been doing for the past 25 years in their garages or in the back of their classroom or at an exhibit shop in a museum. And the, the popularity of Make Magazine and what Dale Doherty has created with Maker Fair and some of these other larger festivals is to just shine the lens on these individuals who had an idea to build something. Maybe they didn't know how to start when they began, but they talked to people, they did some research, they would collect tools and practice using them, and then come up with these wonderful little creations. I remember the first time I was at a Maker Faire, and you know, this was nine years ago, and um, there was a, a, a wonderful c- composition of makers that had showed up. I think at that time there were about 20,000 people that showed up for the fair. Last year, wow. I think there were about 120,000 people that showed up. Mm. But this first year, there were these wonderful projects. There were three college students who had created a Van de Graaff generator, and they were demonstrating the generator to the public, but they were also talking about the process of building it. And right next door was a 12-year-old girl with her father, and she had made a, a bird feeder that would actually have, have a little switch and take a photograph of the birds that were coming to the feeder. Oh, now, wow. 
to me, both of these were spectacular examples of what it took to get an idea, talk to people, practice using your tools, think about what you needed to know in order to build both of these. And it didn't matter to me that the bird feeders didn't give off 300,000 volts of sparks, but the fact is that both of these processes were, this, were very similar when they would talk about what they needed to learn in order to make these things. And so mm. to me, the, the Make magazine is more than just trying to highlight these wonderful project outcomes. But from the beginning, they've always tried to highlight the process that it takes for somebody who's a novice to become a little bit more informed about the project that they're trying to build. And I think this has huge implications for education. It leads to all sorts of questions. You know, does, does a learner, when is a, in a, is a learner able to choose their own pathway through their investigation or construction? How mm. often does a learner really care and is motivated by what's happening in their instruction? Is it possible in, in school to get stuck? I mean, in the tinkering studio, and I think with a lot of these maker projects, getting stuck happens frequently and often. And in fact, we design for it. We design activities that are not so simple that you don't get yourself stuck often. Because it's the act for me of getting unstuck that I think you really push your understanding and learning. And this was happening naturally in the stories that were coming out of what Make Magazine was highlighting with this new maker movement. Wow. And, and, and you mentioned how this is something that people did from their garages. And when you mentioned that, it sounds like uh, I, I, th I have images of Bill Gates as a teenager breaking into a college uh, so that he can, you know, tinker in a, in, a, in a computer lab and Steve Jobs, you know, stealing as much time as he could so that he can tinker. And uh, it just sounds like it's 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 taking us back to um, pioneers. You mentioned the space race. It sounds like many of our great ideas and accomplishments come out of this type of learning. Well, that's what my experience as well. Because I have a, a background both in education but also in fine arts, I know a variety of artists who have come to express themselves through their artistic practice but have taught themselves how to express themselves on their own, in their studios, mm -hmm. mixing with electricity on their own, mixing paints on their own. You talk about, you talk about Bill Gates. You know, the, the first time a computer was hacked, if I have this right, it's when members of, the, of, a, um, of a model train group at MIT – broke in and hacked the computing power of one of the mainframe servers at MIT in order to run the signals and switches on their model, air, on their model railroad. And when you talk to scientists who are actually um, working and investigating different things in the field, first of all, they tell us that the way that they became interested in science was not necessarily in science class. It was when they noticed some outlandish, unreasonable thing that they didn't understand, and they pursued it on their own for a while. So they would make a little device to record the temperature, or they would make a little device to capture frame-by-frame stop-motion animation. And they find themselves returning to these types of practices as the official scientists now, because even though they're working in a scientific practice, they're still tinkering and making the tools and the devices that they need in order to collect their data to make their observations and share it with others. So I think this is a practice that runs the gamut from welders to scientists to artists to educators. And I think for many of us, we're compelled to do this work, but I think for few of us, we're actually encouraged by many of these places. And so that's what we're trying to do is to provide a few ways to encourage this type of creative and playful um, investigation of the world. Yeah, and it's interesting how these uh, scientists and uh 
um, um, creators uh, are all, also have a little thievery in them. How they got, they'll, they'll break in, they'll <laughs> you know steal the energy they need. It's like they're so they're so into it that they'll go to uh, uh, extra means just to uh, explore it. Well, they're compelled, and I, I think what's better than to compel a young person to feel like they need to know the answer? And for us, we're trying to set the conditions where these young kids and even adults, when they come in as family groups, they get so involved in wanting to create their um, their circuit sticker or they're trying to build the chain reaction contraption that, you know, you often have parents wanting these kids to go eat their lunch, and they say, I don't want to eat lunch, I just want to work here. And um, that's the kind of that's the kind of um, motivation that I think I'm, I'm trying to provide. Excellent. Now, now, what are the types of goals and outcomes that the Exploratorium has for visitors and learners? So we are actually very, very uh, thoughtful about this. And mostly, when I was describing the way that the space looks before, it does look pretty chaotic. And oftentimes, people are laughing. They're enjoying themselves. They're doing some crazy things. So the number one question that we get is, well, this looks like fun, but what are they really learning? And this, mm. this is at the heart of what our recent research and, and, um, and reflection on this work is. And so we have several, indi- several dimensions of learning that we absolutely care about. And some of these may seem at the beginning that they're no-brainers. But to design for these things is actually kind of tricky. So I would say one of our learning dimensions is to have people actively engaged in what they're doing. And for us, that means that they're not just doing what we're told that they're told to do, and they're not just following a set of instructions. But the motivation, the ideas, and the engagement is actually uh, results in people spending a lot of time with us or persisting and um, persisting through problems. You know, if, if, if someone's actively engaged in this, when they reach a stumbling block or a dead end, they're going to pursue it. Now, we're there to help them, of course, but so engagement is, is critical for us. It's also important for us that we provide settings and opportunities for people to take their own initiative and to be intentional about what they do. And again, that can manifest itself in a variety of different ways. That's, that's often seen as setting one's own goals in the problem space that we set up for them. It's seeking and responding to feedback. Now, that might be the feedback that the light is emitting when you're trying mm-hmm. to create a, a light contraption, or it might be feedback from you know, a facilitator in the room. And taking intellectual risks in terms of intentionality and, and, and initiative, you know, for people to actually play it safe, you can kind of tell when people are playing it safe because they're just not asking the hard questions and they're not pushing themselves to go where they don't understand it'll lead them. And so for us, when we see someone take the initiative to go beyond where their current understanding is and they take that risk, to us that shows intellectual courage and we really think that has a lot to do with learning. I think that we care a lot about social scaffolding. How do people respond mm-hmm. to each other in that environment? What do they learn from each other, and how can they help to facilitate each other's ideas? And finally, just as important, is the actual development of some understanding. If we're building a marble contraption on a pegboard wall using ramps and marbles and bumpers, it's not enough for us that they're just engaged in having fun building this contraption that allows a marble to run down the ramps. But it's important to us they start to develop an understanding of the energy and the speed that's in the marble and where the, where the ball is going to leave the track and where it might arrive on the next track in the sequence, whether it makes little jumps or has a lot of energy to bump another object out of the way. Those are things that by tri- repeated trial and error, visitors are able and learners are able to uh, really develop strong understanding about uh, kinetic energy and friction 
and gravity, or when they're working with circuits, they start to develop more intuitive and better understandings about completing circuits, and parallel and series circuits. And so for us, those are sort of the categories that, that we value. Well, in fact, just listening to you uh, makes me excited about visiting, but I can probably guess that what you hear most often from, from kids is, oh, man, because it's time to go. You know, <laughs> they, they can't stay longer to explore. They, we, we hear, oh, man, all the time, because first of all, we hear, oh, man, it didn't do what I expected it to do. Now mm-hmm. I'm going to try this. And then they hear, oh, man, I've got to go because the teacher or the parent or someone who's responsible for them is sort of pulling them out. But one of the mm-hmm. things that we also do at the Exploratorium that I think is a little bit unique is we're designing these experiences so that visitors decide when they're going to start and what they're going to start with in the context of the activity, of course. And visitors also decide when they're finished. So this marble contraption that I described, you know, using using pegboard from Home Depot and balls and tracks that I find at the hardware store, there's not a challenge on the board that says spend 25 minutes and build a contraption. Visitors are allowed to decide when they start, what they build within that context, and when it's good enough for them. And so what I actually like to hear is for people to feel like they're done for today. And we Mm -hmm. get more repeat visitors and more questions about how they can build these things at home uh, that I love to support. In fact, we sometimes joke that our goal is sometimes to get as many of these activities happening outside the museum, at home or in libraries, as well as having visitors come spend time with us at the museum. Actually, Mike, we need to take another short break, but when we return, we're going to talk more about the impact of tinkering on schools. So uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back. And now, more Educate on TalkZone.com. Here's Jonathan Jefferson. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to the show and our ongoing discussion of the Exploratorium and Tinkering and Making with Mike Petrich. If you'd like to join our conversation, the phone lines are open, 888-463-6748. That's 888-463-6748. We're taking your calls on TalkZone. Uh, Mike, let's transition more into uh, how the Exploratorium is, can be used as a learning institution. Um, what, in fact, is the implication of the Tinkering Studio on the Exploratorium as a learning institution? Yeah, so it's an interesting thing. To describe the Exploratorium as a, le- as a learning institution, I think, is right. Um, you know, a lot of people call it a science center. A lot of people call it a children's museum just because of who they often see in the space. But when, when I use the word learning institution, it, it, it harkens back to the founding um, uh, executive director, Frank Oppenheimer, who 44 years ago wanted to create uh, an environment for visitors to come in, interact with science experiments, not just to learn about science, but to actually to start thinking for themselves. So that's why all of the hands-on and sort of the, the do-it-yourself craze with museums started really when when Frank started the Exploratorium early on. And that idea of learning and thinking for yourself had some pretty important political connotations at that time. And in order to do that, Frank realized that what he needed to do was to gather a group of people, scientists, artists, educators, and craftspeople, who weren't 
interested in telling other people what to think or what they should know about science, but who, inter- who are interested in learning themselves about the scientific practices, principles, and phenomenon that they were getting ready to exhibit. So what I love about the Exploratorium and the reason that, that, that it drew me to, to, to this place is because I started talking to staff here who were active, engaged learners more than anything. Even though they might have a title of teacher or educator or professor or physicist, they really, at heart, were always interested in the next thing that they had to learn. So the Tinkering Studio, I feel, is a natural outgrowth of this legacy of people at an institution who are always looking for the next thing that they can learn about and then trying to figure out an appropriate way to share that with the public so it can continue to think about things for themselves as well. That's great. And it also sounds like this would be something that can um, possibly save uh, traditional libraries, uh, museums, or even schools because um, this can make it more engaging. I've I've had the experience, and I think most people have, where there are museums that you love to go to and others that you just feel like you're you're bored out of your mind. So um, do you agree with these, that this is going to have implications for museums, schools, and libraries? I think so. I think that um, we've seen that in the last couple of years. I've, I've actually been really pleased. When we, when we hosted our first teacher workshop a couple of years ago, we had about one-third teachers from schools sign up. We had about a third of the people sign up from museums, some of them very traditional art and science centers, sign up for our tinkering workshops. And the, the last third were librarians. And what I'm realizing in each of these cases, there are school districts, there are, there are libraries and, and their patrons, and there are museums and their visitors. And people right now are looking for an alternative model to truly engage people. And that doesn't mean just to make it more entertaining for people. But I truly believe, based on who I've been talking with and, and what they tell me, this is about turning to the community to make sure that the community is represented at these places. There's nothing, there's nothing worse than walking into a, an art museum or a science museum and feeling like you're not smart enough or I don't belong here. I actually think that's worse than just being bored. I actually wow. think that does a disservice to the community. And what I'm finding is that tinkering is just one way that libraries and school districts and museums are able to engage, validate, and actually welcome the community to not only visit their places, but actually take some leadership and ownership. So I know that libraries are starting programs where they're asking members of the community to come in and, you know, to share some of this work, help teach about a new tool or help to think about a community practice in their community rooms. I know that there are museums like ours that are inviting the community to come in to share the work that they do when they're making and tinkering for their hobbies or for their other practice. And so Mm. I would love to see, I actually think that's the only way that these larger institutions are going to survive in the long run and continue to be meaningful in people's lives. Now, when you say bring the community in, for example, if I'm in uh, Spanish Harlem, uh, would there be stuff uh, when I walk into a museum that would engage me because it may uh, you know, speak to my Latin roots and, and its approach or something to that effect? I don't know if I'm, I'm being clear. Yeah, I do. I think, I think what I'm talking about is, is that, except I think we have to go further, and we have to actually turn our libraries and communities, uh, community centers and, um, and community-based museums into places that can highlight the people from those communities. So in other words, it's not enough just to have something that might be engaging to uh, an aspiring young uh, Latino programmer. 
I want to make sure that I, as an institution, can collect Latino and Hispanic programmers who are actively doing this work day-to-day in their lives and then try to engage other visitors to see people like them do this type of work. So it's not just enough to make it interesting or welcoming. I really think that a museum has has got to start to reflect both in their staffing but also in their visiting artists and scientists the, the members of the community that, that we've been experimenting with through our open make programs and some of the other things we do in the tinkering studio. It's interesting that we, we, um, we're interested in a lot of different things as we're designing our activities, but the number of people that we now, um, that we used to start calling and asking to come in and help us with programs are now calling us because they have an extended group of friends and one of their friends might have a new project that they might want to share with the public. So all of a sudden, our museum space becomes a forum for the community to share the work that they're doing directly with the rest of the community in some pretty profound ways. Now, this sounds so so um, intriguing that I'm surprised that there's not that there hasn't been a uh, an outgrowth of other exploratoriums in other cities that are modeled pretty much exactly as the one in San Francisco. Well, I think you find a lot of people are interested in it. I think that. Um, that a lot of museums that were maybe founded before the Exploratorium are more traditional in their roots, so it just mm-hmm. may take more time. But in almost all cases, everywhere I've been traveling to lately, and I've traveled pretty extensively the last couple of years, even at some of the most traditional museums, some of the most exciting new programs are happening. We were in Moscow last summer, and we were working with, I think, the, the first or the second oldest polytechnic museum in the world. And this is mm. a Moscow Polytechnic Institution. They wanted us to come and do a chain reaction contraption for their public. And we showed up, and I couldn't believe that I didn't know that we were in the right place because it was a beautiful museum. There were lots of old trains and airplanes and, and you know, Sputnik-era um, spacecraft. And, and it was pretty much um, a history museum for technology, very, very passive. There was a lot of reading and a lot of, a lot of looking at objects. And I asked the, the curator that brought us in, I said, are do you realize who we are? Like, we're here to kind of break the rules a little bit and to use materials in some unusual way. And then she, we sort of turned the corner and opened up to a small room that was filled with other programmers and um, inventors and all these sort of unusual contemporary new ideas. And we thought, like, even though the face of this institution seems the same that it's probably been for the last hundred years, there's sort of new blood and new thinking here that's resulting in some of these innovative programs. And I was working side-by-side with local educators and local artists who they had brought in because they were interested in having this conversation. So I think we're at the starting point of some really interesting conversations and programs happening at these pretty traditional places. Now, now, having traveled extensively, is it similar, the desires in, in moving forward, is it similar in the U.S. as in um, in Europe or in uh, Russia? Yeah, this is a question. Uh, the, the, what I'm going to answer is sort of the similarity in what the learners or the visitors or the people that we work with and how they respond. Because, you know, we've worked with monks in India. We've, we've, we, um, we were in Saudi Arabia a couple of years ago working with um, teenage men and women to facilitate their population of, of parents and kids. And we, we just returned from a, a visit working with six museums in, in, um, in Europe, and we spent a lot of time in the United States, in the South, and in the, the Southwest. And the number one question that we get before anybody, before anybody convinces us to go visit is they say, you know, 
I really like the work that you're doing, but I don't think my visitors are going to really get it. I don't think my visitors are really going to understand and want to do this. And what I keep thinking about is, you know, people are people. Even though you might think of your visitors as unique to your sort of population or to your place, we've gone with the same activity into many different countries, and the, the absolute truth that I know I can expect is that people are going to be interested, they're going to be enthusiastic, they're going to be a little tentative about making mistakes to begin with, but if we can get over that hump, then they're sort of flying on their own. And I've never been disappointed in the fact that people have these innate human qualities for for being creative, for being thoughtful, and for being thought-provoking and making observations and asking questions. Some of these are practices that emerge over time, but I've never been disappointed with any of the population that I've worked with around the world. Wow, that's that's excellent. We're going to take one last short break before we wrap up with our special guest, Mike Petrich. So please stay tuned. You're listening to Educate on TalkZone.com. Back to Jonathan Jefferson. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to the show as we conclude our very interesting conversations and discussions regarding the Exploratorium Tinkering and Making. Uh, Mike, I'm curious. Um, the museums and institutions you visit worldwide do they first visit the Exploratorium before they invite you, or do they invite you from word of mouth? <laughs> it's, it's usually a little bit of both. I think um, one, of the, one of the surprising things to me is, the, it shouldn't be, but the surprising thing to me was the popularity of um, the reflections that our team makes in our blog. So we have a Tinkering Studio website, and, and one of the team members asked me if they could start a blog, and I thought, well, no, I don't want to just brag about what we're doing. I said, I'd be happy to start a blog, but for me, it's about sharing the things that don't work as much as sharing the things that work, sharing our intentions as designers, sharing our practices as educators and facilitators. And if we're willing to share warts and all, the things that are working or not working, it's a much better use of our time to start blogging and, and sharing our work in the world. And I find that more often than not, there are people who have been reading the blog avidly for, for many years that mm. I had no idea were interested and so we'll get calls out of the blue from, from local school districts to, you know, museums and places halfway around the world. And I'll tell you, the, the way that we respond is pretty interesting. There are a lot of people who are interested in, uh, in, in buying or acquiring a tinkering studio uh, for themselves. They just want to sort of bring it in and they want to know what the curriculum is and they want to know where to place the tables and what materials to order. And I think I'm less interested in that than I am with people in places who are interested in doing it for themselves. So we tend to work with community centers and libraries, school teachers and districts, and some museums who say, who they really hear that in order to make a program like this really work, it's got to be localized, it's got to reflect the community, and that organization, whether it's a library or a community center, they really need to own it, which means they need to help build it. They need to help to develop the programming, the curriculum, and it's much easier for people to keep this going long-term if they have hand-to-hand in building it and know how to fix it when they've built it themselves. So we get a lot of interest from a lot of different places, but for me, the, the most inspiring and, and the places we learn the most from are those who are really doing it their own way on their own. 
is it cost prohibitive if a, if a public school or a private school wanted to uh, build a tinkering studio? Um, is it something that uh, they would have to fundraise for? Is it something that they get uh, sticker shock from, or is it you know up to them? Yeah, I think it's. I think the, the the best answer and the truthful answer is that it's really it's up to the ambitions and the goals that each place has. You know, when when we started doing this years ago, we would go into a school and we would end up pulling out the, all the science and, and art materials that were sitting in the classrooms closets unused for year after year, and so we would start mm. pulling together different activities and projects based on the materials that already existed. There are other programs that we've helped get going at museums where. of their materials comes from the public. So they're reusing strawberry baskets, cool, you know, cool whip containers and, and, um, paper towel tubes because, you know, the the materials and tools, you want to make sure that you've got the right amount, but you can also get a lot of recycled and reused materials, um, to use with these programs. And, you know, there are other places that are going all out and there's, there's, they're outfitting their places with 3D printers and laser cutters and and a beautiful set of tools. The, the way that this thing works well is not the type or the number of tools or even the amount of money that you have, because I've seen the most dedicated, thoughtful, passionate educators work with far less than most people have, but they're engaging a group of kids around a project where these kids are still thinking for themselves, they're following their own pathways, and this educator has figured out a way to cobble together the materials to make those things happen. It's it's all about the people here. The tools and the materials and the activities, they're great starting points. There are a lot of things that we've learned and have to share about that. But if you don't have the right people who are really dedicated to, to looking at kids as positive, capable learners, kids from all backgrounds as capable, thoughtful people, then I think um, I think doesn't matter how wonderful your space is set up, I think you're going to find yourself in a, in a deficit. Yeah, I, and and hearing you say that, I'm thinking that this can also be a bridge um, that can um, close some cultural divides. For example, if I'm in St. Lawrence County, New York, which is a huge uh, Amish uh, population, um, building a, a, a studio that pulls on the, the resources from the community, you may be and you who, who never into a studio that has things they can tinker with that are very common in the, in the, in the Amish community. And that can actually act as a bridge. I'm really thinking out loud. I don't know what your opinion is on that, <laughs> but I think you're right. And I think, I think you're talking about a mentorship model that is, is in, in, in a lot of ways, some of the best educational models that we can imagine. So if you've got a gathering place for people to get together, to learn from each other, rather than to learn the right answer or whether, rather to learn some esoteric knowledge that we're all expected to learn, if you can create an environment where people can be actively building their understanding and sharing with one another what they know, I think that's what you're talking about here. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't teach some serious science or that you can't have serious outcomes in terms of art or theater or poetry or writing, but that's all based on the disposition of the people who are in the space. So to me, it's really this opportunity to gather people together to share what's in their background in history and to share it with a new population or an interested group of people or somebody else who has an opportunity to take it further than you might have at your age or with your experience. Mm-hmm. And I remember earlier in the show, you mentioning how two families that who, who never met uh, once they get started on a project together can be there for two hours engaging on, in a project. And I just see so much uh 
bridge building, barrier breaking. I don't know what terminology you want to use, but I just see so much opportunity in just that alone, just the fact that they're working together on something that they're both curious about. Well, I think that's another thing um, that that we're really pleased to see both at the museum but also in our community centers and libraries. That, that is, you know, for so many years, and this still exists, uh, a science center or an art museum is seen as the expert. And so as a visitor, you might go in expecting to learn from the museum or from the experts. And I'm not saying that's bad. That There's still a role for that in your spectrum of, of life learning experiences. But in these spaces that I'm talking about, the experts are all around us. The You know, we may know as facilitators a little bit more about how to get you through the activity than most of the learners or visitors that come in. But we do what we can as facilitators to make sure that we allow the expertise to emerge out of those learners and visitors that we're working with. So instead of everybody constantly looking to me to help them solve a problem or to get going on their project, we try to create an environment where people realize that this new person that I just met who's younger than me or older than me or looks like me or doesn't look like me, they have something of value to contribute to my thinking. And when, when the space is really humming, they're not looking to us to tell them how to get going. They're looking to each other to solve problems, to get new ideas, to complexify some of their thinking. And, and that's what I really love about the opportunity for this type of thing. Excellent. Now, what is your biggest fear about this movement? <laughs> My biggest fear is that it become too popular. Now, this is, this is a funny but very serious thing. Now, it's, it's great that there's so much attention right now to the maker community, and it's, it's really wonderful that, that there are a lot of people interested in what we're doing at the Exploratorium and, and in other museums, like the Science Museum of Minnesota and the New York Hall of Science. They all have very popular, wonderful making and tinkering programs that they're developing. I'm worried that it becomes so popular that school districts or museums or libraries will say, well, everybody else is doing it. We have to have one, too. And they do a fundraiser or they cut a check and they hire people and they get them going along this pathway where they don't really understand what it's all about. And then what's going to happen is you're going to have a bunch of experiences that aren't so positive for the learners that are engaged in it. And you're going to have these organizations a year from now saying, well, we tried that whole making and tinkering thing and it's not, it doesn't really work. When really they haven't given it a chance to make it their own. And so why I'm really excited about the enthusiasm and the attention, and that's because we're learning a tremendous amount by all of our colleagues and collaborators out there. I'm also worried that it's going to be so popularized that people are going to want to do this without really knowing what it takes to take it on long term and to do it seriously. Yeah, it sounds like the passion must be there. Okay, we have been speaking with Mike Petrich, director of the Making Collaborative at the Exploratorium in San Francisco, California. Mike, where can listeners go to learn more about tinkering and making? I would go to um, I would go to the Make Magazine website. I would go to the Tinkering Studio website at the Exploratorium. That's tinkering.exploratorium.edu. And I would um, I would look around in your local communities, see if there's a hacker space or a maker space that's opening up in an old in a, in a, in a, um, in a storefront or a community center or a library. I bet they're closer than you think. Great. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. I love it. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to Educate with Dr. Jefferson. Tune in next time as we continue to tackle the truth behind schoolhouse doors. 